Hello and welcome to Market Matters, a podcast brought to you by Emirates and Meeting. My name is Maurice Gravier. I am Chief Investment Officer for the bank. In today's episode, I will be joined by my colleagues, Giorgio Borelli and Satyajit Singh, respectively in charge of asset allocation and fixed income strategy. The topic of today is interest rates and fixed income, especially in emerging markets. So far this year, for the first time in ages, investors in this structurally safe asset class have experienced negative returns. Minus 4% year-to-date for developed markets government bonds, minus 2% for emerging market debt, and only high yield, which is almost as risky as equities, is up by a modest 2%. So let's start with interest rates for the US dollar. Giorgio, as head of asset allocation, you know better than anyone that the future path of US Treasury yields has implications for all markets, starting, of course, with fixed income. So what is your outlook for long-dated yields in the US and how does it relate to emerging market debt? Yes, Maurice, I'll first summarize the main points of our thought process, while the views will be detailed by Satya. So in general, three points. We see the current pause in rising yields as temporary, so we should preferably wait for the 10-year Treasury yield to be between 1.8 and 2% to be outright bullish on emerging market debt. The risk of the tapering of asset purchases will be looming larger as we approach year-end, so being structurally bullish on emerging market fixed income is not advisable. Last but not least, yet there are tactical opportunities emerging market investors should catch. In particular, we see emerging market hard currency debt as being relatively appealing. Going back to US rates, we must observe that year-to-date fixed income assets, and in particular emerging market bonds, have been broadly impacted by the bear market in US treasuries. Duration risk stemming from higher rates has overpowered the benefits on strong global growth, so losses have in general been avoided only in the higher yielding bonds, more sensitive to the cycle than to interest rate risk. Although the high volatility phase or the rise in yields might be over, we hold the view that the rally in US rates is not yet done. Our Treasury scenario has played out so far this year, at least partially. Yields have been rising as it is customary during a recovery, as we mentioned in our previous report riding the recovery wave. Yet, long-dated US yields seem to be still too low, and by this we mean that the 10-year, three-month yield curve has failed to keep up with the market-implied inflation. Also, you know, it seems odd that with unprecedented interventions, both in the monetary and the fiscal camp, yields still trail the economy and markets do not put the Fed to the test to just go by Powell's narrative that inflationary pressures will be temporary. The so-called break-even inflation, the difference between the yield on the 10-year Treasury note and the one on Treasury inflation protected securities for the same tenor, has been rising steadily since its March 2020 pandemic low to reach its current 2.4%, the top end of the historical range. Investors have been discounting a constructive post-recession unfolding of the business cycle, with very strong support from the Fed and Congress at the same time. 
The signal is that future inflation must normalize, especially as the Fed has embraced a new regime called Average Inflation Targeting, AIT. AIT means that Fed officials want to materially see inflation rise above target before tightening policy. The yield curve, measured for instance as the difference between the yield on the 10-year and the 3-year note, has been rising steadily as well, anticipating strong improvements in the economy. But given the extraordinary nature of the public interventions and strong real growth into year-end, forecast at levels not seen since the 80s, one would expect the yield curve to steepen further to be more aligned with macro projections and what indicated by break-even inflation. Otherwise, markets should record a huge failure to persistently raise price pressures, meaning that break-even inflation would eventually have to drop. Under this scenario, which remains a tail risk, macro projections would also be likely to somewhat disappoint. It seems more plausible to us that markets are just taking a breather, with long-dated yields range bounces much, standing ready to promptly reassess the outlook as fresh inflation and growth forecasts are released. Also, Fed officials mentioned that towards summertime, it would be appropriate to initiate talk about when to start the winding down of the program of asset purchases. This program, dubbed also quantitative easing, is the Fed's steadfast buying of treasuries, responsible for exerting downward pressure on market rates. So overall, if economic expansion rates remain sustained, as they should, since the Fed is driving a high-pressure economy. And at the same time, the discussion on QE tapering gains traction, as it should, with the major investment houses expecting tapering to be started early in 22. then most ingredients would be there for yields to start rising again. To summarize, under this scenario, duration risks would be re-emerging later this year, with renewed downward pressure on high-quality bonds across the fixed-income spectrum. Hence, our advice to investors is that they should be tactical and leverage relative opportunities within emerging market fixed-income, rather than being outright bullish on the asset class. Thank you, Giorgio, for this uh, very comprehensive uh, answer. So we should expect another episode of Tensional Trades before it gets better. And anyway, there are tactical opportunities and you have to be selective. Before going into details of the recommendations with Satyajit, what else can you tell us about the outlook for emerging markets' debt? Thank you, Maurice. On a briefer note, maybe one point that is not yet fully appreciated is that the kind of recovery we're going to see will force investors to be selective in the emerging market space. Since China started to slow down very early this year, the global recovery has been led by the developed economies. Now the United States, with Europe most likely to follow soon as lockdowns are lifted. This will be a services-led recovery, one led by the reopening of the economy, and it is unlikely to provide a very strong uplift to emerging market ex-China, which in order to outperform needs a boost in the manufacturing sector. Hence, the yield differential is unlikely to shift markedly in favor of emerging markets. 
China is a, is a story to itself, being such a large economy less dependent on global dynamics. Actually, Satya would be mentioning one view related to China fixed income that investors should consider. Thanks again, Giorgio. Now, Satya, you are our head of fixed income strategy, and it's not an easy asset class so far. Let, let me ask the question very directly. Where do you see opportunities in your markets for our investors? Thank you, Morris. I can't agree with you more. In general, following up from the scenario outlined by Giorgio, our view is that investors should take advantage of the underperformance of emerging market hard currency debt versus US high-yield corporate bonds. Emerging market corporate bonds remain expensive, but being relatively defensive, bond selection in this space is still warranted. Investors should avoid local emerging market currency bonds. That is, local duration risk if US yields are still set to rise and the dollar to benefit in addition to the possible rate hikes by the emerging market central banks. We don't see for the time being GCC outperformance at any risk as rising US sales have historically been supportive of GCC bonds. Finally, Chinese government bonds should find a place alongside other global treasuries in investor portfolios. Now coming to details, overall, we would say that credit investors will have to trade carefully, both in the emerging markets and in the US, as valuation-wise, yields tend to be sitting at the lower end of their 10-year range and in some cases, right at the very bottom. We are focusing our attention on emerging market hard currency sovereign debt. In absolute terms, dollar sovereigns currently exhibit a slightly higher yield to maturity versus local debt. They compare favorably versus emerging market corporates and stand out against US high yield corporates. We would definitely feel more bullish on dollar sovereigns if the US 10-year yield traded between 1.8% or 2%. Yet, even today their relative underperformance versus US high yield corporates is significant and justifies holding positions in this space. The former sovereigns have returned negative 3% year-to-date. The latter, US corp- corporates high yield plus 2% in total return terms. And we should be mindful that US high yield has hardly been more expensive in the last 10 years. We are keen to highlight that proper credit selection does require that investors make risk-adjusted assessments so that the risk attached to the higher yielding bonds is accounted for. To this end, we have compared risk-adjusted yields to maturities by considering the volatility of the reference index alongside its yield. Dollar sovereigns offer value in relative terms as a risk-adjusted yield to maturity is close to the historical average, while other credits sit at the bottom end of the range, with the exception of local emerging market debt, which is much more volatile. We trust high yield to outperform investment grade in 2021 within the emerging market space. There are two key drivers of such performance. The first is the shorter duration of high yield bonds. And the second factor is the higher spreads that provide greater carry to investors and hence continue to support the market's hunt for yield. The year-to-date performance differential between the two asset classes of plus 2.2% in favor of emerging market high yield supports our hypothesis. Emerging market corporates lean on the expensive side yet they offer the benefit of defensiveness and shorter duration. So we think that some defensive exposure is warranted until the overall backdrop becomes favorable to more structural risk-taking in the developing economies. For investors interested in MinaDebt, we see risk-taking in the region continue. 
Historically rising US 10-year real yields have overall tended to coincide with the outperformance of high yield versus IG MENA bonds. In particular, we still see value in Egypt and Oman. The latter also supported by neighboring countries following the recent crisis. There has been a slight pullback in Egypt due to the noise around its possible conflict with Ethiopia. However, the country has strong FX reserves and IMF backing. Hence, we don't see any risks to the sovereign credit. The belly of the curve for both the countries provides better relative value. Asia high yield is another asset class that we prefer. It was recently rattled by the Huarong saga and the suspension of trading of 50 shares in the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. However, the risk of contagion has been contained and the spreads trade in the normal range. Typically, offshore investors rank a couple of notches below the onshore players in terms of the underlying assets and hence carry more risk, which is reflected in the wider spreads. The smart way to play this is through funds than taking individual issuer-specific idiosyncratic risks. Finally, for diversification purposes, in the global government bond space, one should not neglect Chinese treasuries. They currently offer an appealing yield north of 3% and possibly limited currency risk in the longer term. As a matter of fact, Beijing remains keen to boost the internationalization of the renminbi and should try to keep its currency stable against the dollar. Thank you, Satya. That's very clear. Now let's discuss another major trend of the current times, sustainable investing. It looks like ESG insurance is gaining material traction, not only in the developed world, but also in emerging countries. What can you tell us about this? That's right, Morris. ESG issuance have gained ground even in the emerging markets. The key driver for this trend has been pressure from asset managers who are increasingly focused on the ESG risk on their portfolios. ESG-mandated funds have really taken off since 2018 across all asset classes. Global assets under management more than doubled from $600 billion at end 2018 to $1.6 trillion by the end of 2020. ESG-focused fixed income funds account for 15% of that number. We have come a long way since 2016 when Poland issued the first green bond. The trend so far has been clearly in favor of green bonds, which currently make up almost 70% of the ESG universe in emerging markets. Looking at volumes, emerging market ESG bond issuance increased 7% in 2020 to $92 billion and currently has $355 billion outstanding. YTD 2021, we have seen close to $80 billion issuance and is on track to create a new record. Corporates in the renewable space, sovereign-owned entities and financials dominate this universe. Within emerging market ESG, sovereign bonds make up just 9% of the space, whereas government-related entities and supranationals account for 31% and 20% respectively, and corporates make up the rest 40%. However, recently we have seen sovereigns directly joining the bandwagon of sustainable bonds. For example, Egypt issued a five-year green bond last year, which was the first such sovereign issuance from the MENA region. Malaysia issued the world's first sustainable sukuk this year. Another trend has been the recent increase in issuance of social and sustainable bonds. They now make up about 30% of the total ESG universe and saw a significant leg up in 2020 when such bonds contributed about two-thirds of the yearly ESG issuance. There has also been pickup in sustainability-linked bonds, which require issuers to define and commit to an ESG target over a number of years. The sustainability-linked bonds are called SLBs, 
They actually address the need of flexibility in the use of proceeds. As through these bonds, issuers commit that the use of proceeds will go towards a combination of green and social projects instead of being forced into a silo. Overall, in emerging market, sustainable issuance year-to-date in 2021 currently stands at $24 billion, having already surpassed the full-year total of 2020, which was $22 billion. In terms of pricing, we haven't seen large difference between conventional bonds and their ESG counterparts from the same issuers, bearing a few exceptions, such as the Egypt Green Bond, which was issued tighter to the underlying sovereign dollar green curve. The so-called green premium or greenium is absent mostly in the emerging markets. We have observed that the pricing tends to reflect the risk sentiments of the broader market. And during discount phases, we do see a premium, premium of close to 25 bips in the emerging market. Whereas when investors become cautious, they don't differentiate between ESG and conventional bonds from emerging market issuers. Looking at regional differences, Chile remains the largest ESG bond issuer with $14 billion outstanding, or one-third of the country's dollar bonds. According to a Goldman Sachs research, within emerging market ESG momentum, that is the three-year average year-on-year change, has been positive across emerging market over the last couple of years. In a positive development, the Middle East has seen more significant improvements in its regional ESG score recently mainly driven by the governance score, captured through improvements in the ease of doing business. So, we do expect an exciting period ahead in the MENA region with more sustainability-linked bonds issuance from the sovereigns. Even within our existing recommended bond list, we are working on a framework to assign a score to each security so that our investors can analyze their portfolios under the ESG lens. Yes, absolutely. ESG and sustainable investment is very high on our agenda. Thank you very much to both of you for this very insightful conversation. And I hope our audience enjoyed it as much as I did. Bottom line, it's time to favor selectivity over simple duration risk. We are underweight currently fixed income in our global tactical asset allocation and overweight equities. Thank you for listening. Stay safe and invest wisely for the long term.